Open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 23. We're going to begin our reading in just a moment in verse 12. Again, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 23, uh, we'll begin in verse 12. We'll read through the end of that chapter. How many of you have experienced my stinging but yet gentle and certainly appropriate rebuke for using those profane four-letter words like luck and its derivative, lucky. Show of hands, please. I see that hand. I see that hand. Yes, yes, yes. I see that. Yes, we'll meet here in the front at the conclusion of our service. Well, that rebuke is followed by the reminder that we believe in the providence of God. That is, our God sovereignly rules and reigns over any and all things. Luck or chance is a pagan concept. All things in the created order are under the sovereign authority of God. Remember, there's only two categories. There's God the creator and the creation. That's it. Makes life really simple, doesn't it? And so God rules over his creation. There isn't even a rogue molecule anywhere in the universe. All of the activities of humanity, the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, even the geographical, geological, and climate realms are governed according to God's perfect will. All things were created by Him, all things owe their continued existence to Him, and all things operate according to His design and His determination. Now, the Bible contains some fascinating accounts of God's miraculous or supernatural intervention into the affairs of men. He has delivered, He has healed. He has suspended the laws of nature and even raised people from the dead. In the book of Acts, we have seen accounts of God's special demonstrations of His grace and His power, such as the tongues of fire at Pentecost, the gift of tongues at Pentecost and afterwards, uh, the miraculous deliverances from prison, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to Paul, the casting out of demons the raising of Eutychus from the dead and other types of healings uh, by the apostles. However, this particular episode in Acts 23 contains nothing that we would normally, uh, would normally be described as supernatural or miraculous. However, that doesn't mean there's nothing to see here or that we just need to hurry through to get to the next big thing. What is described and illustrated are the providential workings of God, His direction of the course of histories, that is, the the activities of men to accomplish His ordained purpose. As intriguing as the characters and the conflict and the plot are, that which is unstated and unseen that lies just beneath what we see and hear is equally intriguing and important. What is described is the earthly conflict that reveals 
the conflict, that is the warfare of the unseen kingdoms in cosmic mortal combat. The battle is real. It is dangerous. There will be casualties. But the outcome has been determined, and it is sure. The kingdom of Christ has conquered and will conquer, and the outcome will be the universal acknowledgement of the lordship of Christ, a lordship that will be acknowledged even by his enemies. Luke's account of Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, the conflict that followed, and Paul's journey to Rome is certainly dramatic. As I said, if I were a movie producer, I'd be all about this story. It's a great story. It is compelling reading and exciting drama. The astute Bible reader understands the biblical accounts are both factually accurate and theologically important. The history is told from a theological perspective that is for a biblical purpose. Every word, every verse, every chapter, and every book is part of the whole Bible, and each serves as an integral part of advancing God's testimony of himself to us. So in looking at our passage today, we note there is no mention of God, there is no gospel, nor is there personal testimony to conversion. However, we understand that the God who isn't mentioned is present, the gospel that isn't stated is the reason for the events recorded, and this episode is the part of the ongoing testimony to the advance of the gospel in the world and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Apostle Paul and others. So let's read, beginning in verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you along with the council give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. And so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by hand and going aside, asked him privately, what is it you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. 
Claudius Lysias, uh, to his excellency, the governor, Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them uh, with the, the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to the council. And I found that, that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me uh, that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to uh, their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night uh, to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. And when they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him uh, to be guarded in Herod's uh, praetorium. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. It is your revelation. It is your testimony to us, given to us by your grace, invested with your power to save and to sanctify. Lord, we have no power to accomplish either one of those things in our own lives or even in the lives of those that will hear this sermon. But we believe that your word has never and will ever return void. And so we, Lord, ask you through the power of your spirit that inspired these words that you would so work in and among us that we would hear, that we would uh, respond in repentance and in faith, that we would respond in obedience uh, for your glory and for the very good of our very souls. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I suppose a, a skeptic might characterize this episode and indeed uh, the entirety of Paul's post-conversion life as that of a misguided but the zealous activities of a disenchanted, even a disillusioned Jew who became convinced that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Savior for all of the world. They might lament that a man of Paul's intellect, courage, drive, and passion wasted his life on the mistaken notion that a crucified Jewish peasant was the Son of God. That assessment would be accurate, but for the fact that the Jewish peasant was the promised seed of the woman, the rightful heir to David's throne, the one conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, this man was the only one man to perfectly obey God, and then he willingly offered himself on the cross at Calvary in atonement for the sins of all who would believe. In that death, he propitiated the wrath of God, securing eternal life for the elect. He stood faithful and steadfast because his message was true and that message was the singular hope of the world. Indeed, that's why he would write that he suffered all things for the sake of the elect. So, while our passage doesn't mention God, similar to the book of Esther, the passage is there as a testimony to the power of the gospel. 
Paul is confident that the God who raised his son from the dead was equally powerful over every circumstance, every obstacle, and even every enemy to him and his message. What we see unstated but in clear display is the overarching and undergirding reality of God's providence. The God of all providence who is superintending every step of Paul's journey. He is the one in whom the, the apostle has rested. And he is the one in whom we must rest. Now, just in case uh, the word or the concept of providence is foreign to you, and I wouldn't be shocked if it were a foreign concept. It is not something that is often taught in contemporary churches. But this doctrine of providence is rooted in the biblical testimony concerning God and his sovereign authority, purpose, and power to determine the entirety of every action and every actor throughout the course of eternity and history. It is Luke that would record the words of Peter at Pentecost that it was according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge that you wicked, that you evil men crucified the Son of God, but God placed his stamp of approval upon that crucified one and raised him from the dead. And I would say to you this, that we are here. You are where you are because it is what? according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge. There may be things that wicked men have done to you. There may be things that wicked men do to you. But yet I can assure you of this, that God has not forgotten you. He is not neglecting you. And that, yes, all of these things have occurred according to the counsel of his own good and perfect will. God wisely directs the course of history to its appointed end. There's one sovereign, one eternal, and one unchanging plan established and enacted for the good of the elect and the glory of God. Within that plan, we live and have our being. We both rightly rest and wrestle in our embrace of the reality that indeed, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So let's look at our text today, beginning in verse 12, this Jewish plot against Paul. A conspiracy made up of a number of individuals that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they hate the apostle Paul. We see the inception of the plot that begins in Acts chapter 9, verse 23. Soon after the conversion of the apostle Paul, he must leave Damascus and he slip out in the middle of the night. They must let him out over the wall in a basket because the Jews are plotting to destroy this one to whom the Lord Jesus appeared, to, to whom he has given this great charge that you're going to take the gospel to the furthest reaches of the world and you're going to preach it to every creature under heaven. And so they hate him because of that gospel. They hate him because of that mandate. And so they plot, they conspire, they scheme to destroy him, and they take what we might think of as a, a blood oath. They, they take, uh, in fact, the, the word used here is the word that we get our English word anathema. They pronounced a curse on ourselves. May we be damned if we do not kill this terrible man, this blasphemous, treasonous man that's speaking 
of the one that was crucified and putting forth this claim that God actually placed a stamp of approval upon him by raising him from the dead. And so you can actually follow the thread all the way up to here and beyond of this plot, these schemers working their conspiracy to kill Paul. Paul mentions it when he speaks to the Ephesian elders. You know, we spent several weeks looking at the passage where he met with those elders and he speaks of the Jews that had plotted against him. And now, indeed, uh, they have wrangled and they have managed and they conspired. He, he is under constraint. He is uh, under the protective custody of the Romans. And they're going to scheme. They're going to lie in order to bring about the opportunity by which they may murder uh, the apostle Paul. And so uh, we see there that there are 40 that are going to make this conspiracy. Now, that's just the ones that say, we'll, we'll hide, we'll get in the nook and the crannies and the alleyways, and, and we'll figure out the way that, that they're going to bring Paul so the, in this supposed uh, trial, and we'll hide there, and we'll be prepared to overwhelm whoever's there guarding him, and we'll kill him. And it, just sometimes the way my mind works. You know, I think God has on occasion needed a good accountant. Now, nothing against you accountants, okay? I, I love you, okay? I appreciate you. Uh, but, but, but sometimes God just doesn't do the math. That, that there's 40 people that want to kill God's man. I mean, this is the God that looks at this old man hundreds of years earlier with his barren wife and says, you know, I got a great plan for you, Abraham. I know you can't have any babies, but I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And, and not only am I going to make a, a, a great nation, uh, the, the, they're, they're going to be 400 years as slaves before they come forth and be delivered by my mighty hand. And, and as this thing is getting going, the, the, the inheritor of the promise, his favorite son is going to predict, he's going to prophesy, all of my brothers are going to bow down. But how does he get his start? In a pit abandoned as his brothers forsake him and go home to tell his father that the beloved son is dead. And then that, that father, Jacob, he thinks we're all going to starve here in Canaan. And he hears, you know, he was just lucky. I mean, there wasn't no cell phones. He couldn't get it on Facebook, could he? Huh? He, he didn't have email. I think he had tin cans and wax. Oh, wait a minute. There wasn't no tin cans either, I don't think. Yeah, but he got word that there was food in Egypt. And just by chance, the boy he thought was dead, the brother that they had left in a hole in the ground, had a plan by which all of the world would be fed during this famine. God certainly needs somebody to run the numbers for him, doesn't he? We'll see how he resolves this situation in just, just a moment. And again, what, what does a man do when 40 people make a vow to kill him? And of course, we, we, we see here that, that they, they, are, they are so despicable and they are so deceitful 
They go to the tribune and ask. Say, you know, isn't it incredible how, how despicable be, people can be so duplicious, despicable? I, I mean, going to the, straight, to, the, to the tribune with a straight, hey, we, we, we really want to sort this thing out. And yet, what? They have an evil scheme by which to rid themselves of their problem. And so we see that there in verse 16, having developed the plan, uh, having agreed upon their course of action, one little word there, it begins verse 16. Now. Now. Now, if I were Luke, and I'm not, I'd have to expand on that just a little bit. Now, it just so happened by accident that Paul was a little bit lucky that night. It just so happened that his nephew gets wind of the scheme. It, it just so happens. It, it, I mean, you know, just, you know, things go bump in the night. Now and and again, the the word translated now is is day. The Greek is sometimes it's translated as the contrastive, the weaker contrastive, but but the sun. Okay, so and you can see there that hey, it, it looks bad. It looks bad for Paul. Don't don't you wish sometimes you didn't know anything, and you could read this story for the first time. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, y'all kind of know where it's going. But sometimes it would be great to be able to blank your mind out. Wow, I, I guess they're going to get him. Forty? But, but, but now, his nephew, the son of Paul's sister, we don't know a thing in the world about this guy. Don't even know anything about the sister. Yeah. And, 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 and why? Now, if you'll, if you'll remember in Paul's testimony in, in Philippians, I've lost everything. We, we assume that his family had forsaken, had, had, had uh, disowned him because of his embrace of the gospel. We don't know, was, was the nephew converted by, through the preaching of Paul or the personal testimony of Paul? Was it just, hey, this is my Uncle Paul. He's the one that bounced me on his knee when I was a little boy. And, I, you know, I can't, I can't live. I, we don't know. We just know it just happened that way. That's all we know, right? It just so happened that the nephew was there. You do know I'm being facetious. So, the nephew is there. We don't know how he got wind of it. He got wind of it. And he goes and he tells the Apostle Paul. And Paul's directions uh, to the, uh, the young man is you need to go to the centurion. I mean, you need to go to the, the tribune, and you need to tell him about the scheme. Now, notice again, I mentioned this last week. Paul doesn't sit there and start singing, K-Sarah, Sarah. He takes action. He doesn't go, well, if it's just the will of God... I'll just sit here and die. I'll just, let, I'll just go out there. and I mean, I know they're out there going to kill me, but I'll just, you know, the, the Lord will deliver me. I mean, it, it really does remind me 
of the late great theologian Louis Grizzard's story. It really wasn't original with St. Louis. But he tells the story of a man whose house is being flooded. And the flood waters are rising. And he's sitting there on his front porch. And a man in a truck comes by and says, Sir, there's flood is coming. The waters are rising. You're going to be swept away. God is going to deliver me. And so he remains there on the porch. A little bit later, a boat comes by his house. The water has risen, and the man is up on the roof of his house. And they say, sir, sir, the waters are rising fast. They're getting higher and higher. You and your home is going to be swept away. No, 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 no. I'll stay here. God is going to deliver me. A little bit later, helicopter flies over. He's on the very tip top up on the chimney. He, he might have been in the days when there was an antenna on top of that chimney, some of you old folks. He may have gotten all the way on top of that television antenna. They say, sir, sir, please take, grab the rope. Climb into the helicopter. We will take you away. The flood waters are rising. He says, no, 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 no. God is going to deliver me. The waters rise. The chimney is covered. The man drowns, dies, and goes to heaven. He stands before God and says, God, you told me you were going to deliver me. And God looked at him and says, you fool. I sent a truck, a boat, and a helicopter. What were you thinking? Now, come on. I don't tell many jokes, but my gracious, cut me some slack. Oh. But Paul was charged with the responsibility of acting wisely in this manner. It was an unfavorable providence. But while there wasn't much under his control as a prisoner of the Romans, he had a little opportunity to do something that would go a long way toward providing for his safety. Now, to be sure, what did he know? God had said, you're going to Rome. So, in some sense, he knew that he was secure, but he took very wise steps. Now, I want to back off this for just a minute. And I am a firm believer in the doctrine of providence. Now, let me say to you, if you come into my office next week, and you tell me, oh, my life is falling apart, and you start listing the 12 stupid things you've done to destroy your life. My first word to you will not be, well, it's just the providence of God. You're there by his design. My first words are what? You're an idiot, and you need to, need to quit being stupid. Okay? Now, now again, you, get, you put things in their proper order, don't you? Okay? Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God over each and every circumstance, and I believe in our responsibility to act and respond biblically. I'm reminded of two Old Testament accounts, two kings, one a Jewish king, one a pagan king. The Jewish king, at a time when his generals were out fighting the battles of Israel, he remains 
at his residence in Jerusalem. And he goes for a stroll out on his roof. And he sees a beautiful lady bathing across the way. And he conspires. And he concocts an evil scheme to have her for his own. And out of that evil scheme comes murder and the destruction of his family. Again, yes, indeed, by the providence of God, he was there in that situation. But he cannot blame God for his sin. I'm reminded of another king, a pagan king that, by all estimations, did not know God, but he certainly central in the history of the nation of Israel. He was the husband of Queen Esther. And we're told in Esther chapter 6, and remember this is the book that doesn't mention God, but he is restless one night. It is during the time that evil Haman is scheming to destroy the Jews. And he says in his restlessness, Bring me the books that tell me, that record this great deed of this man Mordecai that delivered me from the conspirators that were agreed to murder me. And he hears this great testimony of Mordecai and determines to honor him. And it so disturbs the evil schemer Haman that he sets his course towards his own self-destruction. These things just happen? No. They occur according to the set purpose and foreknowledge of God. And he places us in these circumstances to be biblically informed, spirit-filled actors responding to the circumstances and the actions as God brings them our way. And we are to respond in wisdom, and in the mindset that we will honor God and we will seek His glory in each and every circumstance. And so the the young man, he goes to uh, the tribune and uh, he is taken aside and he's able to uh, tell his story. And again, this pagan Roman official that really... He is not the most glittering example or glowing example of integrity that I've ever seen on the pages of the Bible. But again, God so moves upon him, he's like, you know what? I'm tired of fooling with this guy. I mean, you know, it's keeping me up at night. And I mean, all these stinking Jews, they're always, ah, they're always in my ear. It's always, yeah, 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 that. It's, it's always something. Let me toss him a bone. I mean, this guy, who cares? I mean, they're up, so let me just kind of, I'll just plead ignorance. Oh, I, oh that's the terrible tragedy. I, I hate this happened, but you know how these Jews are. No. God moved upon his heart and said, you know what? I'm going to remove him from danger. He, he has informed me that he desires to exercise his rights as a Roman citizen, and that is exactly the route he's going to take. Now, again, he had no vested interest in 
the gospel being vindicated before these secular authorities. He had no vested interest in the, the gospel going to Rome and being presented by the, by the seats of, to the seats of power there. In fact, his only interest may, may have been to pass the buck. But in God's providence, the buck was passed according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And so, he writes this letter, and he actually is going to uh, frustrate the plot. And uh, I, di I didn't count them up, but at least one commentator noted this was the fourth time uh, that the Romans had, had intervened and had delivered the Apostle Paul. So what does he do? Look at verse 23. You got 40? God providentially moves upon his heart and mind. Okay, you got 40? I'll protect God's man. I don't really care about him. But I tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, by way of overkill, by way of testimony of God's power and authority to protect those who are his. You got 40? Well, let's start with 200 soldiers. Let's add 70 horsemen, and then let's take 200 spearmen, and they can escort him. Now, I would imagine that show of force might have buckled the knees of those Jewish henchmen. That, remember I told you that typically the cohort there in the temple was supposed to be about 1,000. Probably typically was a little under that. He sent about half of that cohort to uh, accompany and protect Paul to get him out of harm's way. God uses a, a pagan authority with no real interest in the gospel of Jesus Christ to assure and ensure that the instrument that he has chosen to take that gospel to the furthest reaches of the world and preach it in the most unlikely of places, it's going to get there. And you know, this thing's going to drag on for two years. But you know what? Do you know what time Paul arrived in Rome? I bet y'all don't know this. You know what time Paul arrived in, in, in Rome? Right on time, according to God's timetable. Right on time, which is more than I can say of you on Sunday. Well, I won't go there. I'll just, just, would you bleep that out of the, of the thing? I appreciate that. No, I'm kidding y'all. I'm thankful for every one of y'all. But again, he arrived right on time. And so they leave in essentially the middle of the night, 9 p.m., third, third hour of the night. And, and here's the thing. They don't take some ropes and bind his hands and, you know, ankles and say, we're just drag you. You know, 70 miles to Caesarea, and we don't like you very much anyway. You've been a problem. So we'll just drag you. No. They put him on a, probably a donkey, maybe a horse. But anyway, they, they provide a mount uh, for him. And so God's man is under assault. Satan thinks he's got him, has, has aligned the forces of evil against him. And Paul rides out of town with 470 soldiers to guard him on, on Caesar's donkey. 
It, it reminds me a little bit of Elisha's story when the Samaritan king, you know, wants to uh, attack him and, 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 and he's surrounded and he tells his young uh, assistant, listen, there, there are far more out there that are for us than against us, that, that, that the hills are full of these fiery chariots and horses that are there for my protection. And folks, they're here for our protection until the day that God determines that our journey is finished and our duties have been accomplished. And so we can rest in that. And so we see here in, in chapter, uh, verse 26, the, the letter, kind of a typical ancient letter addressed to Felix. And uh, he went, goes about describing the story. And here's the thing. Now, Many of us are aware of the spin in the news media. In other words, they want to tell their story to advance their agenda, okay? It, it, it's, it's not just the facts. It's the facts slanted to, you know, to, to advance the narrative that I've chosen. Well, our friend here, Claudius uh, Lysias, does a little bit of that. He's a he's, he's little sleight of hand here in the story. You know, like, well, you know, since I'm a man of great honor and virtue and I protect Roman citizens and, 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 and this guy was in trouble and I delivered him, he neglects to tell them that I was prepared to beat him almost to death, to beat the truth out of him when he said just before I struck him, Oh, I'm a Roman citizen. He just kind of glossed over that part. You know, he might, he might not want to tell Felix that. He could get called on the carpet. And so the, uh, uh, the entourage, uh, they, um, they arrive. Uh, they go about halfway. They go 30 to 40 miles to this uh, city, uh, Antipatris. And uh, they, uh, the, the larger part of the contingent returns uh, home. And uh, the, the horsemen, the 70, they continue. Evidently, they're kind of out of reach of the Jews. They're in, into Gentile territory. And so uh, they, they take him and uh, they, they, they accompany him. And he finally arrives there in uh, Caesarea. Uh, uh, Felix is, is given uh, the, the letter uh, uh, regarding Paul. And look at verse 34. Uh, Felix, upon reading of the letter, he asked what province he was from. It's kind of a, a preliminary hearing. Okay, do I need to take this matter? Or are you from somewhere else that I need to uh, send you somewhere else? Uh, he finds out he's from Cilicia, and he says, well, uh, since the crime you're accused of happened in my precinct, I'm going to handle the case rather than sending you back uh, to your home uh, province. And so I'm going to give you uh, the hearing. Uh, we'll wait for your accusers to arrive. And then, irony of irony, Paul, threatened by the Sanhedrin and their henchmen, rides out under the protective of the pagans, arrives in Caesarea, promised a hearing, maybe even a, a just hearing. And while we're waiting, you know that great and beautiful facility 
called the Praetorium that was built by that evil Herod. Why don't you go take a room there so you'll be comfortable until the trial begins? Doesn't it, does that not seem ironic to you as how God providentially cares for the well-being of his man? Now, hey, don't leave here. Well, Tim told me, because God's concerned for me and his providential, that I'm only going to stay in the best accommodations for the rest of my life, just like Apostle Paul. That's not what that means. But it is interesting. I think it's very ironic that he's not stuck in a hole in the ground. He's staying in a palace while he awaits, awaits uh, his trial. Obviously, we see here in this story and, and really the, the whole story, the various ways that people respond to the, the gospel, the Sadducees, they were insanely hostile to the gospel. Pharisees, not as hostile, uh, maybe just neglectful. The tribune really has no interest. Just let me clear my desk of, of this situation. Interesting thing, evidently over the course of these years that are going to pass, uh, quite a number of the Roman uh, centurions, legionnaires, they're going to be converted because Paul's going to tell them about his Savior, Jesus Christ, in the course of this, uh, this journey. And, of course, he will go, and evidently he will preach his message even uh, before all of the pagan courts of the land. And for the most part, they will be disinterested. But what will be accomplished is they will at least announce the gospel is really not a threat to Caesar. And we do not have to seek to eradicate these proclaimers of the gospel. Now, we are reminded, and I mentioned this last week, the enemies of the gospel are absolutely relentless. They're not going to quit. They can't. Now, I understand, I don't, I don't mean that your unbelieving neighbor is going to try to shoot your windows out or flatten your tires. Or, they might, but that's not. But, but the, the logical extent of the position of the unbeliever is they must stamp out any reference to the uniqueness of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the reality of sin and judgment. It's got to go. They, that, that stings. They cannot live with these things and with these uh, reminders, okay? And, and that's what is going on in our culture, is the gospel and those who believe the gospel have to go. They cannot speak of these things in public. Why? Because it reminds me, it indicts me that one day I will stand guilty before holy God. And I am not going to think about it in this realm. They must achieve total victory. There can be no survivors. They are ruthless. And indeed, behind all that's visible, and there's a lot that's visible, there is an invisible kingdom that is empowering and informing this godless agenda. Now, it's that we're not living in a new age we're living in the same old age in which God has always had his enemies.
and God's people have had the same enemies. So, we certainly should try to understand our life in this world and how to respond to the sorrows, the afflictions, even the persecutions, and the joys biblically. We do this as we rest in the certain promise of God's good plan, a plan that may include our suffering or it may include our success, a plan that does include both resting in God and wrestling in and with our circumstances and their implications. Again, in the providence of God, if you're sick, I don't tell you just to wait and see. I tell you to go to the doctor. If you tell me I have a financial crisis, I tell you to go to work. If you desire that people be saved, I tell you to proclaim the gospel. We, like Job so long before us, are often perplexed and feel like we're left to ponder in our sorrow with no solutions in sight. We must remember not to darken the counsel of God or vainly speculate in the hearing of others with words without knowledge. Should we walk out of our prisons, real or metaphorical, like Peter, or do we refuse to leave ourselves secretly and quietly as Paul and Silas did in Philippi? In the real time of our life, we are often overwhelmed. And not only do we not know the answers, we often don't even know the questions. Any of you ever been there before? Do we watch our world collapse as did the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk and ask, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Do we remember that God has ordained the wicked as a judgment upon evil, usually the evil of God's own people? Is God using the evil of this world to carry out his wrath? Would we as Habakkuk not believe it even if we're told what God is doing? In Paul's circumstance, he certainly recalled that which had been previously written by him as a quote from the book of Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. A faith that confesses as Habakkuk did so long ago. Though the fig tree not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock cut, be cut off from the fold, there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places." It's a faith that rejoices in this great truth that Paul had already written before this time. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable is His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? Simply, for, for from Him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever and ever. 
Amen. We tr will trust the wisdom and the goodness of the God of all providence, the God who does and indeed will always do all things well. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this testimony, this truth, an example that you are the faithful God, the God of all of our circumstances. You're sovereign over our height. You're sovereign over the number of our days. You're sovereign over the circumstances of our days. And in all of these things and more, we exalt you. We trust you. And may it be said of us that indeed the just have lived by faith. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.